I want you to turn to people right around you and just say to them, I'm here for you. Just turn, say, I'm here for you. That's the most honest thing I've heard all morning. <laughs> now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn in them. If you have them or your Bible on your devices, or there's Bibles underneath the seats in front of you, into the New Testament, that's toward the back end, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians is right in front of 2 Corinthians, and chapter 13 is right after chapter 12 and right in front of chapter 14. We're going to take a look at this whole chapter as we're taking a little bit of a pivot in this series about God cares for your... The last four weeks, we looked at God cares for your mental and emotional health. That made a lot of people uncomfortable. Not quite sure why we're uncomfortable that God cares about that. I guess it's just uncomfortable admitting and facing some of that. Which is why the last two weeks we said, me too. Well, today we're going to start looking at some areas that he cares about that can impact that emotional and mental health. And one of the biggest areas is our relationships. See, God cares for your relationships. He cares about your relationships. Now, you have to understand that implies, and it's true, that God cares about you and he cares about the other one, whoever that is. We sometimes think that we have a special place, but God loves, period. That means you and me, and that means those who don't even acknowledge him. I mean, Jesus was on the cross and said, to all of those taunting him, all of those who had beaten him, all of those who had nailed him there, all of those who lied about him so that that would happen, as well of those following him, he said, Father, forgive them. So he loves. Love's kind of a big deal. Hollywood attempts to talk about love, but they rarely get it right. Country music tries to tell us about love, and sometimes it's a little off. But Scripture is right on the money. And this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is often labeled the love chapter. Now, I went to Nazarene, we called it Nazarene Youth Conference at that time, Coming up next year, we told you about it last week, and going to be and the youth are going to be having some fundraisers. It's where youth, high school youth from around the country, come together. There'll be seven to ten thousand of them gathering together this time in Tampa Bay, Florida. Uh, and before you get too excited about that, realize they're doing it in July. Uh, <laughs> got cheaper rates that way. But uh, I went to one of those when I was. A freshman in high school, I won't tell you what number of those it was, because you might figure out what number this one is and figure out how long ago it was. Let's just say it wasn't last year. But in order to go, we had to memorize 1 Corinthians 13. 
So this morning, I want to quote it for you, but I can't, so I'll read it. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 13, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Don't anybody say amen. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned or passed through the fire, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, or your translation might say, love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. God cares about your relationships. And we have to understand that and understand that love is the overriding factor. Now, you need to get this straight. Love is more of a grace than a gift. Love must penetrate our relationships for them to be meaningful and impactful. Let me repeat that last statement. Love must penetrate, dominate, overwhelm our relationships. For them to be meaningful and impactful. In analyzing this chapter, Dr. Oscar Reed wrote some time ago, Love is the result of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, which enables a Christian to behave as a member of the body of Christ. You see, if you're struggling to fulfill what you believe Scripture is saying about how we should live, then check your love. How's your LQ, your love quotient? If it's not very high, that's why you're struggling. Now, that doesn't mean there are no struggles if you're doing things well in that area. Because remember, for there to be a relationship, there must be at least two. Sometimes the other person isn't doing much with it. But that doesn't excuse us. We're still called to love. Now, the Greek word that we translate love in this chapter is the word agape. A-G-A-P-E in the English language, agape. There are three 
basic kinds of love translated, the word that is translated love, in the English language, you just, we just use one. This word is a powerful word. In fact, scholars say that the word agape, that we translate love, is a uniquely Christian word. In fact, Dr. Reed went on and said, it denotes a quality displayed in the cross. A love which asks for no compensation. It represents a giving which asks not for possession. For Christ's giving was one of self-giving. He thought nothing for himself. And if we do not demonstrate agape love, that all-encompassing, unconditional, giving love, if we don't demonstrate that love in our relationships, then we are in essence saying we do not value that person or that relationship. Ouch. Love is a big deal. Not just because it sells. It's a big deal. Not just because we dedicate a day after somebody named St. Valentine. Jesus was way ahead of him. Love is a big deal because without it, our relationships aren't going to work. There's got to be love. It matters in how we live and in how we live with others. It matters in all of our relationships, starting with our relationship with Jesus Christ. It must be dominated by love. Understanding this love is a big deal. So I want to step us through this powerful chapter. Not just the middle verses, verses 4 through 7, that gets used at all the weddings. And we all sit back and say, isn't that nice? It's really nice for them to do that at the beginning. They won't live that way later. This is the love chapter, not the wedding chapter. Nowhere in there does it say, do this in your vows. It's, a, it's an appropriate and fine and a powerful thing. But it's more important to live it daily in all of our relationships. Now, for many of you right now, someone is coming to mind. The picture of somebody you're in a relationship with and you're going, yeah, but not them. Now, it might be because you're excusing how they act toward you, meaning you don't need to act appropriately toward them. Let me answer that question. Yes, you do. It doesn't matter how they're acting. Oh, it matters because it hurts. It matters because it impacts things. But that doesn't change your responsibility to still love as Christ loved. So let's look at this. Let's define this as best we can. The first three verses of this chapter give us the picture of love. We are the, excuse me, the necessity of love. Because without love, life loses meaning. Without love, life loses meaning. In fact, I believe love is the breath of your relationships. That literally, it is what keeps us breathing in our relationships. The love. 
the possibility, the promise, and the power of love. It's the breath in the relationships. So many people have never experienced a loving relationship. It's one reason that it's difficult for them to accept Jesus. Because when we talk about Jesus being love, and we talk about his unconditional love, because they've never experienced that on a human level that they've recognized anyway, they can't imagine a God who they think they cannot see really loving them that way. That's our responsibility. To love. The, the necessity of love is literally for life. You've probably heard many, many years ago, there was an experiment done in orphanages in another country where babies who were abandoned they did an experiment which would be against all ethic practices today, thank goodness. But they had newborns who didn't have family anyway, who they simply took care of their basic physical needs. They made sure they got nourishment and the diaper was changed, and that was it. They didn't care for them, they didn't hold and rock them, they didn't do the normal stuff that we see with babies. And then there was a group of equal size who they did the basic necessities and then did all the other stuff that we would expect in taking care of an infant. The results were dramatic in the growth and health of the two groups. The group that only got the basics did not flourish physically, mentally, and certainly not emotionally, while the other group did. Love is the breath. It gives the meaning. It is literally the life of relationships. The necessity of it cannot be overstated. But we also don't need to keep hammering it because it should be obvious. Secondly, verses 4 through the beginning of verse 8 give us the picture of love. This is the passage, this is the part of the passage we're familiar with and, and love to hear told to other people. That's one reason we like to hear it at weddings because it's not being said to us. We assume that the pastor who's doing the wedding is speaking just to the couple. I always make sure when I do a wedding that though I may be giving this message personally to them, the rest of you pay attention because <laughs> this applies to us all, whatever it might be. And especially this passage. This passage is so powerful, so descriptive, so overwhelming, but also so life-changing. These are the characteristics of love described here. First of all, love is patient. <laughs> so a bunch of us going, yep, I'm done. Doesn't, it doesn't mean you're never impatient, but love is patient. Now, let me just warn you. If you struggle with patience, be careful if you pray for patience. 
Because the only way to determine if you're patient is to be put in impatient situations. I don't need any more of those. I don't know about you. Love is patient. So patience is a characteristic of love. So is kindness. I'm convinced we could see a revival in our world if those of us who claim to follow Christ would show basic kindness to everybody around us. Just the basic kindness. Don't snap back at them on Facebook. Or in person. Or passively, aggressively talk about them in the line at the checkout while you're with the other person, but you want them to overhear what you're saying. No, I was not in line with you this week. Love is patient. It is full of kindness. Love also has a lack of envy or boasting. It is not envious. True love, agape love, is not envious. It does not need to boast. There is an absence of arrogance when it's true love. There's also an absence of rudeness. Now, if we'll deal with the kindness, the rudeness should fall away. It's pretty hard to be rude and kind at the same time. You can try if you want. Well, I don't encourage you to, but I mean, it just doesn't work. If I'm being kind, I'm not going to be rude. So if you want to get rid of rudeness, just be kind. That'll take care of it. This picture of love that we should have in all of our relationships is also one of unselfishness. This might be the most powerful one. If we imagine your relationships... Just right now, imagine the ones closest to you or who should be closest to you. What if both sides were trying to outdo the other one in being unselfish? Would that change anything? I mean, if you literally, instead of going, what do I want, thought first, not ignoring your own needs and desires, but thought first, What's best for this relationship? What would they prefer? I don't mean, you know, when a kid says, hey, I want, you know, ice cream for breakfast. I do too. But, you know, it might not be what's best. I'm talking about it, especially in equal relationships. If you were trying to be nothing but unselfish in that relationship, what would they prefer when it's appropriate? What's best for this relationship? Pastor Dave Ingbrecht, who spoke at our Ignite services back in March, I began my official ministry and service under him. He had a great question we would ask when we would meet together and when we would meet as a church board and leadership. When he would get to this point, he would ask the question, what's best for the body? Not, Not what do I want. What's best for the whole body? 
What if you asked that in your relationships, in your marriage, in your family, with your closest friends? What's best for this relationship? How different would it be? I think you could revolutionize. Completely turn around some relationships. Instantly? Probably not, because whatever may have built up took some time. And healing can take some time as well. The picture of love. <laughs> now we're getting down to the practical. Is a lack of, are you ready? Irritability. Now just, just think back on this last week, or maybe yesterday, or this morning. Any irritability in the relationship? Now, this doesn't mean being a doormat and passive about everything. It means realizing, does this matter? Some of the things we get irritated at won't matter an hour later, let alone a year later or five years later. We get irritated at some of the dumbest things. And I said we, that includes me. picture of love, of agape love, is a lack of irritability and resentment. There is no room for resentment in a relationship. There's also no rejoicing at wrongdoing unless you're playing a game and the other person making a bad play helps you win. That's different. But there's no rejoicing at wrongdoing. That means no rejoicing when things don't go well for the other person. That's the picture that we're to be living out. Though there's no rejoicing at wrongdoing, there is a lot of rejoicing with the truth. When it's the truth, when things are going well. One of the greatest things you can do for anybody you're in a relationship with is cheer them on. Find something to cheer and encourage. No matter how little. Now, try to be sensitive in it, not like the kid in school when they were told to pair off with each other in fifth grade in the classroom and say something nice about the other one and the, the kid didn't know what to say and he just said you don't sweat much for a fat kid I mean that's not a comp that's not a good thing to say but what if we literally looked for ways to encourage to rejoice about them and with them because you see love endures true love endures it is not over quickly true love endures because it believes because it hopes which is why chapter 13 verse 8 the first three words we dismiss love never fails love never ends now that's describing Jesus and his love. So we need to realize his love never fails. His love never ends for us. But we're told over and over and over in scripture to be like Jesus. Which means we need to do our best. We will fail. It's going to happen. We're going to mess up in the relationship. It will happen. 
But if we live out these other characteristics, those moments become smaller and smaller and further apart to where the focus is not on the failure. The focus is on the forever as it should be. The next couple of verses, verses 8 through 10, tells us of the longevity of love. I already mentioned it. Our love will often fail. Christ's love never fails. Verse 8, for prophecies, they'll pass away. For tongues, they will cease. For knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect, that's Christ, comes, the partial will pass away. Endurance is vital for good relationships. It matters that that person knows you're not just there right now, you'll be there tomorrow and the next day. To let them know that anything under your control, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Then verses 11 and 12 give us this picture of the maturity of love. Um, verse 11 says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. Of course, I thought like a child. Makes sense. I reasoned like a child. Well, you were a child. But when I became a man, when I matured, is what is being told here, I gave up childish ways. You ever seen a 30-year-old that isn't 30? Or a 60-year-old? We could keep going. Maturity of love matters. We must grow in our relationships. We're going to celebrate Jody and I an anniversary this week. And I'm by contract, maritally, I'm not allowed to tell you which one. Uh, because you might make a guess as to how old we are. Just understand we were children when we got married. I can honestly say as in love as we were on that day. We're more in love now. We got a lot more failures under our belt too. But you see, it's endured. And what's remembered is not the failure, but the lasting. What's remembered is not the failure, but the forgiveness. That's the picture of love. That the maturity of love recognizes the length that we will go to to make this work. For you see, we must work for more understanding or clarity in our relationships. It takes work. We're famous for telling people, it's been a great marriage, but we've worked at it. I'm not easy to live with. No comment on the other side. It takes work to have a successful relationship, friendship, any type of relationship. We have to be willing to put in that work, and that takes maturity, spiritual maturity, emotional maturity, mental maturity. That's why we spend four weeks looking at that. I want you to get this picture 
real quick. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The mirrors they had at the time this was written are nothing like our mirrors. They were they were polished metal. And when it says we see in a mirror dimly, the poorer you were, the less polished your metal was that you used for a mirror. So it was really dim. I mean, multiply the factor of if you either have no exhaust fan or forget to turn it on when you take a shower. And that mirror fogs up. And you can see there's a mirror there. And you know you're standing in front of it, but you can't make out who you are. Now, some mornings I prefer that. But what he is saying is, you flip that, that fan on and it begins to clear. That mirror clears up. It gets more polished through time and maturity to where I can now see clearly what matters. That's the maturity. In the beginning, we can get upset about the silliest things. That we now look back and go, what difference did that make? You know what happens in churches too? I could take you to a church. I'm not going to tell you where it is. Who to this day, 30 some years after their building project, the people that are still there, some of them would tell you this wasn't built right. And the reason is we voted for the wrong color carpet. They voted on the color of the carpet, which I told my friend who was pastoring at the time, you're an idiot. I love you, <laughs> but don't do that. And there were people who left the church because they put in the wrong color carpet. And Jesus is up in heaven saying, boy, sure I'm glad I went to the cross for that one. I don't think so. Sometimes in our relationships, we need to lay aside some of those things that really don't matter. That's the maturity of the relationship. And lastly, verse 13 tells us the position of love. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The others matter. Faith and hope are powerful. But love must have priority. It shouldn't even be close. In fact, love is what gives us the hope and strengthens our faith. Love's got to be the priority and it must be clearly evident to the other person. You shouldn't have to explain that you love them. It should be evident by your actions and your words without explaining your love. Just by what you do and don't do. Go back to verses 4 through 7 and those characteristics. So let me ask you this morning in closing. Is love a priority in your relationships? Is any relationship coming to mind where you haven't been making love the priority in that relationship? 
Secondly, are there any characteristics of love that you need to work on in that relationship? Well, I can answer that one for you. The answer is yes. We all have areas. Part of the prayer is, Lord, man, I hated preparing this message. Because I had to deal with this all week. But I need to. So do you. We need to take some time this week and honestly ask those questions. And more honestly answer them. And then go to some people. Maybe give an apology. And begin living these things out. Because love, agape, Christ-like love, is the breath and life of your relationships. Jesus, thank you for the power of your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that you not only love us, you've shown us and told us how to love like you. May we have the courage to do that. Father, may we follow your plan and your pattern. Lord, thank you for the patience of these people this morning and listening to me try to explain your word. May your Holy Spirit just smooth out all the rough edges of my stuff to make clear what you desire. And may we have the courage and determination this week to make love a priority in our relationships, starting in our home with our friends, family, even those that are scattered. Those we work with. Even some neighbors. Lord, may your love dominate our relationships, starting with you. I pray this for each of us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.